Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is my first time at Davos and uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. And uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 65 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. So three connected stories tonight, two from the frozen tundra of Iowa, one from the frozen tundra of Switzerland. You know what? Frozen tundra, is that one of those word combos you have to, if I just said tundra, would you know what I meant? Anyway, if you're going to say tundra, I think you're legally required to say frozen. Maybe that's just a Green Bay thing. Let's begin with the Iowa caucus of Monday. It was cold and snowy, and a lot of cable news correspondents got their frequent flyer miles for going there and interviewing people and asking them how cold they were and why they loved Trump so much. Sometimes those interviews veered into territory that made us wonder if maybe some of these voters were not in touch with the mothership, so to speak. Joe Biden has been dead since 2019. James Woods, the actor, is playing Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, Poopy Pants. But the president is trying to get us back down with our economy because... So he is the president. Yes, he's very, he never conceded. He is very much the president of the republic. Biden has been doing all his White House pictures out there in California at Black Rock Studio with the fake green screen. Right. And so... He doesn't even live in the White House. Nobody lives in White House. Oh, so he's in California? Yeah. See, I'm only a minute into the episode and already I've been thrown off track. All right, the Iowa caucus. Trump won, but 50% of the vote was against him. He was as close to an incumbent as you're ever going to have. So the lazy way to look at this is that he won by a lot. But another take is that in the considered view of those 110,000 or so middle American heartland Republican voters who make it their business to get the up-close look at the candidate, the tally was Trump half and someone else half. The turnout was about 10% of the eligible voters in the state, and it was less than it was in the 2022 midterms. And Trump, essentially the incumbent, as I said, for the Republicans, the embodiment of the conspiracy theories, only got half the vote. And there was this thing of his, his opponents doing everything possible in the last year not to campaign against him. Much has been made of the counterintuitive impact that the legal troubles have had on the race. More indictments, more bump for Trump. But most candidates in races where the laws of political gravity actually exist would pounce on the news that the front runner was a criminal in the eyes of the FBI and prosecutors. You'd see it in every interview, in every ad. In this race, because of the internal logic of the modern Republican base, Trump's opponents didn't even want to talk about Trump's legal problems. And when they did, they actually supported him. 
And even with all of that, Trump still lost half the vote. Have I stressed that enough? In this rock-solid conservative Republican electorate in Lily White, Iowa. And I mean the snow, of course. One more thing worth pointing out about the Iowa results. The polls were right. 50-2020 was more or less what they were expecting. And not to gloat, but the fourth place finisher got almost the exact amount I predicted last week he would, and in last week's episode, and then did exactly what I had hoped he would do. I would be more specific, but I pledge to never say his name again. See you, pal. I'll keep you posted on how soon it is that we can also have a DeSantis going away or a DeSantis free podcast feed. But in some other Iowa-related news, see, I told you we would connect the dots today. Iowa was one of 15 states with more than 8 million children who would be shut out of a new federal food assistance program intended to help needy families during the summer months. Those kids will be denied because of a choice by their leaders. Uh, set to begin this summer, this new program will provide low-income families with about $120 for each eligible child, which can then be used to purchase food at a grocery store or a farmer's market when the schools are closed for the summer. The deadline for the states to opt in to this program, which was approved by Congress with bipartisan support, by the way, was January 1st. And 35 states, all five U.S. territories and four tribal nations, mostly in Oklahoma, had signed up for the program, which provides a total of $2.5 billion in federal funds for an estimated 21 million children whose families already qualify for free or reduced price lunches. The 35 states included 32 led by Democratic governors, 13 led by Republican governors from all parts of the country. But the 15 states where they said no, all Republicans. So why would the governor of Iowa and the other states possibly want to say no to federal food aid going to their states? Well, some are flashing a bit more fig leaf than others. Some are just decrying the welfare state. Some governors are complaining that there's a bureaucracy involved and that the states would have to pay half of the cost of administering the program. The governor of Ira, King Kim Reynolds, has complained about both the welfare angle and the bureaucracy. She is right. The welfare of children in Iowa would benefit from this. Iowa has about 240,000 children who qualify for this program. And about one in seven kids in that state live in a situation where they're considered food insecure. That's the number of kids who live in a household who report not enough to eat or who aren't sure where their next meal will come from. It's a big problem in the United States. There are over 44 million people, including 13 million kids, experience food insecurity every year. Yes, feeding kids is part of the welfare state. Also a very effective one. Money that parents get for school, for school, for food rather, goes directly back into the community at neighborhood supermarkets and green markets. It also reduces health care costs since, our, since poor nutrition leads to, never mind, you know why you need to give kids food. So what, what is it about this critique that, the, that it has to be administered by the states? I was actually wondering about that also. Well, wouldn't you know it, it was the segregationist congressman who insisted years ago that the program be state administered so that their home state governors could make sure that no undesirables would be getting any benefits. And in recent years, it's been the Republicans who have been making it harder and harder for families to access the program. Just a reminder here that SNAP, the, names, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Access Program, the current branding for food stamps, it's an agriculture program. It's in the farm bill because, in theory, families in need would buy the stuff that farmers grow. 
A little sidebar here. This year, we will spend $10.3 million to promote U.S. hard spirits, beer, wine, and even candy overseas through something called the Market Access Program. I get the idea that we try to help U.S. farmers and small businesses promote their brands, but you really think that money goes back to the workers or farmers? More likely, it ends up in the hands of shareholders rather than stakeholders. Maybe, just maybe, we take that money and the other examples of corporate welfare, there's that word again, about $203 million a year, and we fully fund the program that lets hungry families buy fresh fruits and vegetables from our farmers. Instead, Iowa courageously says no to $20 million or so of federal, federal funding, a lot of it for kids for whom school is not only a place where they learn, but also a place to get their only solid meals of the day. And we'll have to do without that next summer. Doing without is not on the agenda of our next stop of cold places. This week, a lot of rich cats will be meeting in Davos, Switzerland to, well, okay. I'm not super sure I know what they do there. I've never been invited. It seems like an idea festival for a lot of people who love the idea of themselves. You don't have to be rich to get invited to Davos. That guy you heard at the top of the program was a historian named Rutger Bregman, who made his way onto a panel in 2019, and I doubt they've had him back since. All the silly talk about rich people paying their fair share in taxes, here's a little more of what he had to say. I mean, 10, ten years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question, what must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes, mm -hmm. taxes, taxes. We need to, mm -hmm. I mean, just two days ago, there was a billionaire in here, uh, what's his name, Michael Dell. And uh, he asked the question like, name me one country where a top marginal tax rate of 70% has actually worked. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm a historian. The United States, that's where it has actually worked. In the 1950s, during <laughs> Republican President Eisenhower, you know, the war veteran, the top marginal tax rate in the US was 91% mm -hmm. for people like Michael Dell. You know, the top estate tax for people like Michael Dell was more than 70%. I mean, this is not rocket science. So it's now a regular feature of the conference for people like that, those concerned about our world, to descend on Davos, to protest, or when they want to be more effective, to distribute ideas about distribution of wealth and the sort. Oxfam, the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief, released a big study this week that focuses on the insane level of wealth inequality that we have on the planet Earth right now. Now, I've beaten the drum a fair bit about greedflation in our country and about my prescription that Biden be a bit more populist about the insecurity that exists that crosses party lines. One more example, just for old time's sake, Starbucks could have given each of its 400,000 employees an $11,000 raise in 2023 and still finish the year with a $20 billion profit. So you don't like tax the rich? Okay, how about a campaign rally saying, give workers a raise? Anyhow, back to Davos and the rest of the world. I think Jeff Bezos was invited. He has done okay for himself, that guy. His fortune has increased $32.7 billion just since 2020. And that's the amount that's gone up. He has about $167 billion right now. Amazon workers, by the way, are desperately trying to organize warehouses and earn a living wage. A funny thing about that, I asked Alexa how much Amazon workers made worldwide, and she works for Amazon. The number she gave me turned out to be the highest of the range I found quoted online. Anyway, Oxfam describes the condition at a shrimp factory that processes food for Whole Foods, which is Amazon. And it wasn't pretty. 
Workers describe getting doc pay for taking a water break. Overall, the wealth of the five biggest billionaires has more than doubled since 2020, while 60% of humanity on Earth has gotten poor. I'll do the math for you here. That's five up and five billion down. A global pandemic, wars, cost of living spikes connected to those two things, and the core, and of course, the slow collapse of our climate. The gap gets wider and wider, not so much between the rich and the poor, but between the oligarchy and the vast majority of us. Some dramatic numbers make this point. It would take 1,200 years for a female worker in the health and social sector to earn what a CEO of the top Fortune 500 companies makes in a single year. Now, I make the distinction about a female worker because a lot of the Oxfam report is about that gap. Globally, men owe own rather $105 trillion more wealth than women. Checking my notes here, yep, women still are more than 50% of the world's population. And not to get too cutesy about this, but permit me to make one more point. If each of the five wealthiest men were to spend a million dollars a day, it would take them 476 years to exhaust that money. Much of this phenomenon is blamed on the concentration in markets. 25 years ago, 10 companies controlled the global seed market, for example. Today, it's just two companies. 60 pharmaceutical companies have now become 10. Big Pharma has become huge pharma. And New York's financial sector has also hastened this problem. Private equity firms with nearly $6 trillion under their control and the big three index funds with $20 trillion in them have deepened this move towards more and more monopolies, or at least monopoly power. With its corporate power has become, has become more and more money concentrated with the people that run these companies. And this is not just a U.S. problem, to be, to be clear. Other countries have their Bezoses and Muskuses and Bloombergses. In the Middle East, we may not know their names or how to mispronounce them, but the richest 1% hold 48% of financial wealth in the Middle East, and that's in cash and stocks. In Asia, 1% own 50% of the wealth, and in Europe, 1% own 47%. This monopoly comes that control that benefit the super-duper insanely wealthy is enabled by government. Only with progressive tax rates for billionaires, unions for workers, and the use of public entities like Medicare rather than privatization of essential things can we start to turn this around. Oh, and we have to break through the corporate obstacles to address in the climate emergency that surprise is making the earth poorer and in health and in wealth on top of everything the richest one percent globally admit as much carbon pollution as the poorest two-thirds of humanity so that's the news the weather in davos by the way today it's 24 degrees with clear skies and sun and we'll be right back with ask anthony anything Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. So this is the part of the program that we take a question from our listeners, a question from a fellow host. Recently, we've answered uh, people who have criticized me other places. 
This week, we take Ask Anthony from a, a, a segment that was named first, Ask Frank Anything. And it is from the other side of midnight this past Friday, when he had a segment that he does on every Friday. He's been on the air much longer than I, an excellent program that you should listen to if you don't already subscribe on the Red Apple Podcast Network or anywhere you get podcasts. So John from Long Island called into the other side of midnight with a question for Frank. And here it goes. All right. My question to you is this. So uh, a few weeks ago, you had Dominic Carter and Anthony Weiner on the show. And I want to ask you, you as a journalist, I guess you are to a certain extent, on a mindset of the political mindset of people. I'm amazed a guy like Anthony Weiner is like so like a drone-like personality. Now, is that really real? He's just gunning for his, his political group. He just wants to see what's right and wrong and so forth. What's the thinking of a guy like that? He just doesn't want to see it the way he should be seen, at least in my opinion. What's your thinking on that? What is that all about? By the way, he's got a great show. I listen to show all time he's got a great personality he's a very smart guy but with that said what's your thinking with something like that so there you go it was someone that asked frank about me and my motivations he could have called me i kind of get the feeling john from long island might have actually called me once or twice but actually if you go and listen to frank's answer to the question it was a pretty good one something along the lines of its nature and its nurture it's the environment i'm in but also the way i was raised but it did get me thinking, and I'll do my best to answer his question. If you just listen to the language that he used, the idea that it was so impossible for him to conceive that the things I said I believed or were true is a little bit at the crux of what we have wrong with the media that you and I have talked about several times. This whole idea, he's a drone. Does he really, is he just talking to his political group? Then he says, uh, how can he just not see it the way it should be seen? This sense of unbelievability is insightful to me because, to be honest with you, I sometimes have the same question to the hosts here at WABC Radio or the conservatives that I hear. The question comes down to, are they in on it? Is there an inside game because they can't really believe what they're saying? Well, in my case... Not only do I believe what I'm saying, but I believe I'm doing a very important service, as I described last week, a very important service in bringing truth to these conversations that sometimes be, seem truth-free. But it is insightful to me just to hear the perspective of, of, of one poll in this debate that not only can't agree on facts, but can't even remotely agree on motivation. We can't even get to the place that we agree on good faith. Now, he does go on to say, as you heard at the end of that question, him talk about the idea, he likes the show, my show, he likes listening to me, he likes my personality. But the one thing he can't get his mind around, John from Long Island, is that not only am I speaking from my heart, but I'm speaking truthfully. Now, I am not going to claim that there is not some performative uh, um, iconoclasm, uh, iconoclasty, iconoclasm that goes on uh, um, in this forum. People do like to the back and forth, and sometimes I give it to them with a little excess. And maybe, you know, pointing out on the podcast, what I, as I did today, about the great inequality that exists in the world is a little way of tweaking them and their, and their leader, Donald Trump. But the fact is that we really don't have a sense of good faith on the other side that I think really does need to be restored so we can have conversations about the Venn diagram of facts that we observe. Um, Sometimes when I say this is just a fact, why can't we just have a conversation about those facts? One of the things I need to include is views like John in Long Island who simply don't believe 
that the other side is on the level. And maybe that's true of my side as well with some of their voices. So that's Ask Anthony Anything. WienerWABC at gmail.com is where you can lob in questions directly to me. You can also listen to my program every Saturday between 2 and 4. It's called The Middle. You can download that as well. I appreciate all your support. I want to thank Eric and Ricky for their help in making this podcast um, possible. Also, check out the WABC YouTube channel, which has some clips from this podcast and some of our other broadcasts, including uh, my weekend show. That's a good place for you to stay um, to stay up to date on what's going on at 77 WABC Radio and on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. <laughs>